In the 1990s, before we were all using the internet, a trend started, you may be, maybe it's even called a craze, for something called stereograms. Uh, some galleries ran them as special displays. They adorned coffee tables around the world. They were in books, on walls, even postcards. Uh, but what were they? Well, well, they're better known as magic eye pictures, and perhaps you've seen them. They were composite pictures within pictures that give you a sort of 3D representation of a solid object or surface. Uh, when you first look at these stereograms, they, they appear to be nothing more than a mass of colors or a sort of random pattern. But if you could just adjust your eyes in the right way to look through the picture, you'd see this 3D picture. Now, what this led to was lots and lots of people staring at these pictures trying to make themselves go cross-eyed. Um, and, and invariably what would happen is some people would see whatever the 3D image hidden inside was, but there was always a few people who just couldn't make their eyes kind of go right in, and do it properly. Um, and those people therefore were convinced that there wasn't actually a 3D picture at all, rather that this whole thing was just an elaborate hoax being played on them. Um, this is people like, like my grandmother, God bless her. <laughs> So people would be like looking at these pictures and, and, and some people would be saying like, oh, I love that 3D lion. And, and other people would be saying, it's, it's just a mass of colors. There's nothing there. <laughs> or perhaps you remember the 2015 internet craze of the black and blue dress. Two people looking at the same thing, but seeing it differently. And at some level, this is at the root of all of our outrage. We see things differently, and not just 3D pictures or a black and blue dress, but, but morals and ethics and politics and economics and religion. You know, for a creature, us humans, for a creature that look, well, we all look remarkably similar, we are different in almost every possible way. And, and not always just different, like regularly we're opposite. And, and the reason for this? Well, one of the big reasons, I think, for this is our worldview. Like, like worldview is, well, it's described often as the lenses through which we look at the world. Uh, but, but I wonder if actually we need to think a little more deeply than that. It might not be quite so simple. Because often when we wear lenses, uh, when you put on a pair of glasses, you're very aware that you have these lenses on. But, but what shapes us? and how we think and how we disagree with each other it is sometimes, I think it's rooted deeper than that, not just in how we see the world, the lenses that we're looking for, but, but rather, I think it's in the story that we think we're part of. Like everyone has a way of looking at the world, but what really shapes us is the story of how we think the world should be. And that affects well, that affects everything. The story that you think you're part of will affect how you live. It will affect whether you want to get married or not. It'll affect where you go to college and if you go to college. It'll affect your friends' choices, the job that you choose. Do you have kids? How do you raise those kids? The story that you are part of or that you think you're part of will affect how you vote. It'll probably affect everything about your life. And more than many of us would like to admit, it's, it's the story that's responsible for so much of our lives. 
Like if you're wondering like what's really guiding your life, what is at the steering wheel of your life, I would want to suggest to you it's the story. It's how you think the world is working and where you think you're placed in it. Now, in the New Testament letter of 1 Peter, the writer is instructing his readers on how they should go about their lives as Jesus followers. And in verse 13 of the first chapter, Peter says this. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, what's Peter doing here? Well, I think a way to look at what Peter's doing in these verses is he's actually asking a question about the story. Notice, on one hand, he's saying, you know, set all your hope in the grace of Jesus, because on the other hand, you've left what he calls a way of ignorance. Like, what story are you following? Or perhaps, what story do you believe in? See, Peter seems to be writing this because Christians, just like anybody else, can experience what you might call story slip. And story slip is where, over time, what you say is the story that you're living by isn't actually the story that you follow. So Peter says, set your hope on Jesus and don't go back to living the way that you used to. He's worried about story slip. And we see this in all sorts of ways as Christians. At Christians that can be call themselves Christians, but are fundamentally shaped by, by a secular story. Perhaps you've noticed at some point Christians screaming at each other, on the internet. Ed Stetzer, he notes it like this. He says, when our worldview is markedly similar to that of a person who doesn't know Jesus, like what does that say about us? When our worldview is similar to a person who doesn't know Jesus, what does that say about us? And I think that's a really good question. And, and this question then perhaps leads us to ask about angry Christians in the age of rage. Like our story as Christians is to live out the surprising grace of Jesus. Yet we find ourselves so often caught up in the rage of the rest of the world. The question that we, we should be asking ourselves, perhaps the question we need to ask ourselves is, is the story you think you're following actually the story you are following? Because we are immersed, uh, you could say that we're permanently marinated in a world that is angry. And I think that's shaping us. Like you, the influences uh, that you have and your personal formation, like I think it comes to us in a very specific and common way these days. It's difficult to escape uh, because, well, because it's almost everywhere. You know what I'm talking about because you're, you're on it right now. It's called the internet. Like the World Wide Web has phenomenal ability to transfer information, knowledge, and even wisdom to us. There's, there's enough on the net to shape all of our stories for the good, to make us better. There's enough there to change us in a good way. And every single internet pioneer that you ever see interviewed seems to have intended that what they were doing online would be used for good. 
but it hasn't quite worked out that way, has it? And I think that's because there's two significant problems with allowing yourself to be formed by what goes online, by taking part in, let's call it, internet formation. And the two significant problems are this, the question of quality and the question of quantity. And let's think about quality to begin with. Like, everything is on the internet, but is it any good? Like, what's the quality of what you're looking at? And listen, before you say anything, I'm aware of the irony that you're watching this on the internet right now. But many people describe the phenomena of, of picking up their phone or their device and then just wasting an hour scrolling through ultimately nothing, like just just nonsense that you're looking at. And while it's nonsense and it's, and it's kind of worthless, some of the stuff that you find yourself scrolling through, all the time you're doing that, you're being influenced. Uh, but if the quality's not there, the influence isn't necessarily for the good. It isn't for the better. So on one hand, in Philippians, St. Paul tells us to think about things that are, well, quality, things that are good, pure, admirable, and praiseworthy. Yet a lazy hour on the internet can expose you to rage and anger, racism, bullying, shaming, indecency, and what, what, what the Bible would call all sorts of other evils. But I wonder if we don't always stop to think about the quality, to think about what this is doing to us. Like, is the quality of the media you are influenced by suitable for the story that you want to live. And while it's probably no surprise to you that the quality of the internet is suspect, a possibly bigger challenge to navigate is the quantity. It's said that 90% of the electronic data currently available in the world today has been created in the last two years. Like, just think about that for a moment. There are 40,000 Google searches every second of every day. In every minute of every day, Snapchat users share over 527,000 photos. YouTubers in every minute of every day watch over 4 million videos. There are nearly 500,000 tweets sent and Instagrammers post nearly 50,000 photos every minute of every day. And all of this while a quarter, yes, 25% of the world's population are on Facebook. So almost every social interaction I have these days involves someone telling me, and maybe you're the same, that you encounter a relationship with someone and they say, oh, you must watch this show or listen to this podcast or you must see this social media post. Like we are being forced fed content and there's a lot to binge on. The problem with this is, when you're dealing with so much content all the time, there's very little time to reflect and consider. So while the media companies are constantly working tirelessly to keep our attention, our failure to look away means we never really spend any time considering what it is that we're engaging with. And this, I think, is why we're seeing conspiracy theories love the internet and they're growing there. Racism and exclusion and division are all on the rise because we're not spending time thinking about the quantity and quality of what we're being engaged to. So, so what do we do with that? 
Well, the obvious answer is that we need to limit our exposure to the internet and, and the other media that's increasing our outrage and therefore badly shaping our story. And like, listen, that might sound like a really obvious thing to say. And part of the reason it sounds like an obvious thing to say is, is we're seeing this type of advice given all over the place. It's not just pastors that are saying this, but, but all sorts of people from psychologists to, to the people that made social media itself are saying, you know, limit your time online reduce your screen time. Don't let your children spend too much time online. And just before we think this is a children's problem, just note that 40 to 60 year olds are the biggest users of social media in the world. But to be honest with you, it's kind of easy to say, or just limit your time. You know, so I don't want just to be another voice that comes along as a pastor and says, well, if we limit our time, it'll all be okay. Because it's easy to say, turn off your screen. The question is, what do you do instead? Now, I'm a great believer that often a modern problem needs an ancient solution, which takes us back again to 1 Peter in the passage that we looked at at the start. Let's read it again. It says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all of your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter seems to think that we need to get our focus on the right things. He says, set your hope on this. Like when, when you're marinating in ideas and a culture that are shaping you negatively, anger, rage, division, disruption, we probably need to get focused on the right story. And so then Peter says, prepare your minds. Some translations, they, they read this as, as gird up your minds. And, and I kind of love this image because uh, they're wrestling around with the original language as to what, Peter uses a metaphor to actually say this. He, he literally says, belt up, or, you know, which is the old word gird, but belt up your mind. Like, like I love that image and taking that image and, and, and bringing it into our modern context. It's, it's as if Peter's saying, like, you're heading out into the world and if, without having your mind in the right place, it's kind of like getting on a roller coaster, but forgetting to put the seatbelt on. You know, it's like belt up your mind. In Romans chapter 12, Paul talks about renewing our mind. But I love this metaphor that Peter uses, and I think it's an important one. Like strap in your brain. Take stock of what's going on around you. What is influencing your mind, the way that you think, the way that you are? And then Peter uses a word that for some of us causes us the shivers. He says, discipline. Like at various points over the past century, this word has sort of floated in and out of fashion. You know, humanity's quest for its, for its own freedom has often sort of rejected the notion of discipline in favor of the quick fix, the, the instant result. Yet, in, in a somewhat controversial book called Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell observed that preparation and hard work were consistent features in the lives of successful people. So perhaps it's not surprising that the ancient wisdom is that if you want to live out a particular story, stay true to a particular belief or way of life, then that's not going to just happen. It's going to take discipline. And in the case that Peter's talking to us about, it's going to take spiritual 
discipline. The writer Dallas Willard, whose work on spiritual discipline should probably be like required reading for Christians, he describes spiritual disciplines as the practices that are required to help us become more like Jesus. Willard says that if we want to be like Jesus, then we should probably look at how he lived. Uh, you know, about the sort of things, well, he says it like this. He says that the spiritual disciplines are love of Jesus with the resolute will to be like him whom we love. So a spiritual dis- uh, discipline is taking that love of Jesus and letting it, sh- well, actually letting it shape you into being like him. So here's three suggestions for you that I think you could use to fill the void left from occasionally stepping away from the rage-filled internet or whatever else it is that causes you to be outraged. I think you'll find that these three will help you be less angry and more whole. They'll help you stay on track with the story of Jesus. And a quick read of any of the accounts of Jesus' life and you'll see these three things happening quite often. They're not uh, fancy, they're not particularly clever, they're pretty basic actually. The first thing is this, like read your Bible. (laughs) I told told you it wasn't gonna be a complex list, right? The first thing is, is read your Bible. The statistics are consistent around the world in every survey that's done. The majority of churchgoers don't read their Bibles regularly. So there's Christians out there and the vast majority of us as Christians are not regularly engaging with the Bible. Now, uh, Westside Kings, our creed confesses that the Bible is the story that we immerse ourselves in. It's the story of Jesus. So if you're immersed or if I'm immersed in a culture of rage, anger, and division, this is going to shape who I am. it, It forms us in particular ways. But if we immerse ourselves in the biblical story, Well, that's going to have a similar effect. It's going to shape and start to shape and form us into the story that it's telling. And people often say to me, well, well, it's fine that you say read the Bible. I don't know where to start. Well, in terms of practicing a spiritual discipline, just open one of the Gospels up, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, any of the four, and and just start reading. Because as you're reading about the story of Jesus, it's going to start forming you. But just a quick thing for you on that. Don't read the Bible just so that you'll know more. Spiritual discipline isn't a quest for more knowledge. There's a way to read a text that you just know more about it. But a spiritual discipline is to read it in such a way that you let it form you and shape you and mold you. Like, what is this text asking me to do and be like? Second thing uh, is prayer. And I told you this was an ancient solution to a modern problem, right? But prayer. Like I think a lot of our rage is rooted in our insecurities and in our fears. And scripture constantly speaks of prayer as the place to go with your insecurities. There's a sort of pattern. Fill yourself with formative scripture and then take your worries and concerns to God. Now, later in this very letter of Peter's that we're reading, in chapter 5, Peter says, cast all your anxieties onto Jesus. Like, and, I, and I love that word, cast. It's like throw. So Peter, Peter doesn't say, just like, pass your anxieties to Jesus. He's like, hurl them. Like, get them far away from you and give them to Jesus. You see, because what prayer does is prayer allows us to bring all the fuel that would feed our outrage, all of that stuff that would ignite our anger, and kind of just leave it with Jesus. You don't believe me? Well, 
try it. And it doesn't even matter if you're a Christian or not. Jesus hears everybody's prayers. But I think you'll notice that it's really hard to vent or savage someone that you're praying for. And then the third thing is fasting. Now, here's a discipline that we struggle to relate to and rarely practice. But fasting didn't begin its life as a dieting trend. For centuries, Christians have known that taking some time out to fast from things reminds us that it's God that we really need in our lives. So in a culture that's constantly shaping us with an invitation to binge, the spiritual disciplines invite us to go without Like fasting, fasting does a lot of things. It helps us separate need from want. It helps us to reset our priorities and values. And and it helps us, well, it helps us learn to be patient. And I'm not very good at being patient. I don't know, maybe you've mastered it. I haven't. The other week there, a friend and I, we went out and we bought new cross-country skis. And uh, I texted him afterwards when I got home and said, I now can't wait for snow. And he replied, he's wise, my friend, is he replied, Delayed gratification is good for us. It's a true message that I really don't like very much. But sometimes the call to slow down and wait is important. See, now, fasting doesn't need to be about food, although it might be. Stepping away from food can be hugely formative for us if it's safe and timely to do so. But what about fasting your technology? What about fasting the internet? Like, what is there in your life that is helping you forget the story that you're trying to live out? What if you were just to take a period of time, maybe an hour, maybe a day, maybe a week, and say, let me just do without that and see if I can focus more on the God that I need? So there's three disciplines, Bible reading, prayer, fasting. They're not magic. They're quite simple, actually. And one more thing about them. They're slow, like they're really slow. They're not quick fixes. And in a world that's running too fast, where our anger rages quickly and loudly, the kind of discipline of of, of guiding your spirituality is sometimes just to slow down and to realize that one Bible verse, a quick prayer and a day of fasting something isn't gonna change everything for you. But if we make this a regular discipline, it will change us. But notice what Peter says at the end of the paragraph that we're looking at. He says, be holy in your conduct, which sounds scary, right? Like, oh my goodness, what does that even look like? But let's just remember for a moment, the word holy is a call to be different, to be Jesus-like. The word literally means set apart, but it doesn't mean set apart, be distant. It means set apart, be different. Like, and we live in a soup of opinions and narratives. The internet's full of them. They're competing stories everywhere. And each of them is telling you how to be. And our rising anger and quick rage, I think it's telling us one thing above all, that the story that we're presently in isn't a good one. Like, if you're always angry, if you quickly fly off the handle, if you get what you want by raising your voice, If you have enemies online that you've never met, if a certain politician causes you to head towards your keyboard with a plan to post, if you just find yourself easily triggered these days, like Peter's advice is simple, like be holy. Peter's saying, like be different from that. 
I, I recently watched the Netflix film, The Social Dilemma. It's probably required viewing for all of us, but it fascinated me that at the end, the essential message of their whole movie was that we, the users of the internet, need to act differently. A group of programmers, designers, and a couple of genuine IT geeks saying to the world, be different. <laughs> and then Peter, <laughs> be holy. Change the story. Like throughout this series, I've tried to show at various points that our anger is being formed by things. It's being shaped because we're being shaped by the world. And this is not new. This has always been the case. Our environments and our surroundings and our influences are shaping us. It's a garbage in, garbage out kind of process. So the ancient wisdom of Peter, this former fisherman, disciple of Jesus, is absolutely apt for us, even still today. Belt up your mind, get some spiritual disciplines, focus on Jesus, and be different. Like perhaps we can phrase Peter's wisdom like this. You may live in an age of rage, but that doesn't mean you have to be angry. Grace and peace to you all. <laughs>